Welcome to my podcast. to taking you into the world of Funga. Michael Meditations is one of the few legal psilocybin retreats in the world. Based in Jamaica, they provide an approachable setting where guests from all walks of life can legally experience the power of one of nature's oldest medicines. The retreat consists of a preparation period, a seven-day stay in Jamaica where three high-dose psilocybin sessions take place, and an essential integration protocol that follow these days. I am so proud to be able to interview Justin Townsend today, CEO and head facilitator at Michael Meditations. Over the past 20 years, Justin has delved into both transpersonal and Jungian depth psychology, explored psychedelic modes of healing, and developed meditation and breathwork techniques, which he taught in Germany. After attending a private retreat with Michael Meditations in 2017, he saw the opportunity to combine his unique business skills with his interest in alternative healing methods. Justin joined the team soon afterward, becoming partner and CEO in 2019. I was introduced to Justin as I was formulating the concept around Funga. I view him as a mentor because he has not only given me fantastic guidance and advice, but is also one of the most knowledgeable people I've come across surrounding this whole topic. Welcome, Justin. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I um I mentioned in my introduction that you've been a mentor to me during the creation of Funga. I think the way that you approach this work is from such a good place and I feel like I have so much to learn from you. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I appreciate that. No, you're welcome. Absolutely. Before we start with the questions, I would just like to ask you about your beginnings and how you how you got interested in this space. And, uh, yeah, what, what your start was? Well, my start... OK, so I'm not your typical, if there is such a thing, typical psychedelic practitioner. I suppose the typical psychedelic practitioner these days has some kind of licensure and background in mental health and is either a therapist or a psychologist. Um, so that wasn't, my, that wasn't my background or my beginning. My, my background and beginning was more of a, of a corporate environment and a corporate nature. Mm -hmm. um, I suffered a lot with depression in my late teens and early 20s and also began recreational use of psilocybin and I guess more by luck than by judgment um, I recognized very quickly that it was having a quite a positive effect on my depression and anxiety mm -hmm. um, but of course uh, you know back then um, in the late in the mid 90s late 80s um, psilocybin and most other psychedelics were very stigmatized they were very scary um, and so uh, it was quite a hard thing to get into but in the UK where I grew up um, it was quite common to better go out in the fields and pick a psilocybin strain that we knew locally as Liberty Caps okay so typically uh, you, go, you go out in the farmers fields and just after the rains and you'd find uh, the, the horse manure or the cow manure typically and out of that of growing the Liberty Caps. So we go and pick those and eat those. But then really began um, a process for me. I've always had a, a deep, deep interest in the human condition, both collectively and individually. And I took a deep dive into uh, psychology and the mind. I developed a meditation practice um, and you could say an energy body or energy work practice um, that really helped me to maintain good mental health. And then in the very early 2000s, about 2000, 2001, um, I had my first ayahuasca experience. Now, ayahuasca was not that well known back then. I mean, these days you can walk into many bookshops or look on Amazon and there are many books written about ayahuasca, but back then there really wasn't. And so I had a friend that had been to Holland and been on an ayahuasca ceremony and he said to me, Justin, why don't you try it? It's really quite an amazing experience and so eventually about a year later I did that was 2001 
and that was really the beginning of um, a very separate parallel path of getting involved in psychedelics. I was beginning to have more ayahuasca experiences and get to know the people that were organizing what was known as the psychedelic underground in Europe. They were bringing across medicine men and medicine women from South America and back then they would fly with a liter of ayahuasca on the plane and it was no problem at all. Um, but eventually the, you know, the, it was very, uh, very much the wild, wild west back then and eventually these organizations, and I mean organizations is a loose term, it was a collective of individuals that were organizing these ceremonies mm-hmm. were kind of running into money problems um, like flying people over and putting deposits down on venues we were, we were going to use for ceremonies so they said look can you help us out with an investment and I said yes but in return teach me everything you know and so that began my early step into the indigenous practices of working with psychedelics especially ayahuasca and um, but alongside that it wasn't just medicine men and medicine women uh, we had some great clinicians that were beginning to become involved as well so I got to work alongside great clinicians and great medicine men and medicine women. Um, Fast forward, um, after working a lot with ayahuasca, I moved to Germany. Um, There I learned a form of holotropic breathwork. Um, I spent about two years learning it in group work. I then went on to help to teach it, and then I was then invited to help facilitate four-day-long holotropic breathwork weekends. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then fast forward again, I kept on with my psychedelic use. And in 2017, I joined Micah Meditations as an advisor to the company. Um, shortly after that, about a year later, I actually joined the company as a minority owner. And then about two and a half years ago, completely took the company over. And now I run it with my business partner, Mike. So that's the, the short version, I suppose. Because you've worked with ayahuasca and at Maiko you work with psilocybin. Mm. What are the main differences between ayahuasca therapy and psilocybin therapy? And which one do you prefer? Okay. On a compound molecular level, obviously with, with mushrooms we're working with psilocybin and psilocin. With ayahuasca we're working with NNDMT. Um, I would tell you that... Um, psilocybin tends to be more of a unitive experience, especially at higher doses, peak experiences, whereas ayahuasca tends to be more interactive. So there will be lots of entities and visual representations of entities that show up in the ayahuasca space. That's quite terrifying for some people. It takes them getting used to. Um, I think with ayahuasca shamanism, the foundations, the axioms, the underlying um, approach with ayahuasca is the use of occult forces and spiritual forces and ultimately with the indigenous approach to ayahuasca um, the shaman is mainly doing the healing to you okay right and you're quite passive in that process mm-hmm. I'd say with psilocybin um, like I say it's more unitive um, certainly when it comes to what ayahuasca can treat versus what mushrooms can treat um, ayahuasca there's still research happening is showing that it's good for the relief of depression and trauma to a certain degree um, but psilocybin I would say um, has what's called trans diagnostic advocacy and that simply means whether it's depression anxiety uh, PTSD trauma fibromyalgia cluster headaches uh, migraine headaches Um, the psilocybin application is relevant to all these different mental health conditions or medical conditions. So it has a much broader application, um, I find. And from what I'm reading in the research, that tends to be the case. Great. So I think it's time to move on to our first question, which is, um, please share a moment in your life that you've been confronted with the harshness of reality. Mm. Well, there's the harshness of reality that I get to confront every time I'm working on a retreat, right? Um, then there's my own personal tragedies in life. And, and so I suppose, you know, beyond what we treat here, which is the typical depression and anxiety uh, that arise often out of adverse life experiences, that can be people that suffer with uh, bereavement and end of life diagnosis. Um, you know, people come to us full of life, but with maybe a two or three year 
time frame until they're no longer with us because they've got some kind of diagnosis with a brain cancer mm-hmm. um, and it hasn't yet impacted them behaviorally and begin to sort of negatively affect their lives but they're coming to terms with the end of their life often they're in the prime of life they can be in their 40s and 50s and they've got a beautiful family and children and so that's the harshness of reality that we get to witness here all the time we, we've had guests come through that have survived plane crashes we've had guests mm-hmm. come through that have witnessed as children their parents being murdered in front of them um, so I you know every week on retreat is coming to terms with the harshness of reality and there's no escaping it uh, for me personally um, I guess one of my big tragedies was the failure of my first marriage I didn't see it coming I didn't want it to end it happened at a time when my daughter was only about five or six years old and it was very very distressing for me to to have to go through that mm-hmm. um, so when it comes to the harshness of reality I think that you know one thing I realized in doing this work with mushrooms is that to try and find a path through life that is devoid of any suffering is delusional. Um, it's, it's completely delusional. I believe um, suffering is an inevitable part of life along with the joy um, that everybody has a cross to bear or multiple crosses to bear and that rather than trying to avoid the suffering um, to instead grab the cross and carry it and bear your load, take your burden, and in doing so, build your resilience, build your anti-fragility, um, is, is key to navigating the suffering that will inevitably come for all of us as we get older. Maybe some people face financial ruin, others face ill health, and so that, you know, suffering is there for all of us. And I, a big question in my mind is, it's often not the event or the thing in and of itself that is that creates all the suffering it's it's our reaction to that suffering and how we frame it um, and I think the work I've done with psychedelics in the last 20 years has enabled me to um, not just cope with the tragedies that I've been through and the suffering I've been through um, but also to help me reframe them uh, these events and to not wear me down too much in life and what other practices do you utilize when you're in a moment of suffering Mm-hmm. And you ca- you're not taking psychedelics, or you're not able to, or you don't want to. What mm-hmm. are other practices that you that you can do on a day to day, or that you personally do on a day to day? As part of my breathwork practice, um, there's a meditative component to that as well, a present moment awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, most of us are, as human beings, are just habitually identified with our thoughts. So when a tragic event happen, an event happens, um, these thoughts can be very demoralizing. They can be, um, they can turn us into victims. They can lead us to believe that we're unable to cope with in the world, or that our our future is over, our life is over. Who am I going to be now? Um, and with the meditation practice that I have, um, I don't identify with my thoughts too much because obviously with those thoughts come negative emotions, anxiety, fear, sadness. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not so much that I compartmentalize my emotions. Um, I can witness them. I don't over-identify with them. And the second thing, I guess, is that I allow myself to fully feel my emotions. Um, most of us um, have developed, I wouldn't call it an ability, but a tendency to distract ourselves or just to simply not feel uncomfortable feelings, be that sadness, grief, anger. And when we don't fully feel them, um, we tend to actively suppress them and repress them. And there's one thing I know through this work with psychedelics is that when you actively suppress uncomfortable feelings, they don't just disappear, they actually, the body tends to hold on to them. And what that leads to is um, more explosivity, more reactivity, more easily triggered, and a sense of a great weight upon the shoulders. Um, It also leads to a much more rigid emotional expression or limited range of emotional expression if we are habitual suppressors and repressors of uncomfortable emotions. And so I've I've taught myself and learned over the years that no matter how uncomfortable those feelings are, to, to feel them fully. And as a matter of fact, 
one of the Greek interpretations of the, of the word emotion is that which passes through. And that speaks to the original purpose of an emotion that we should allow ourselves to feel them, pass through us majoritively, and not hold on to them too much or be in the process of actively suppressing them so that they so they become repressed. So it's not that I don't suffer, it's not that I don't have tragedies, um, but I choose how I wish to respond to that thing in and of itself and allow myself to fully feel my emotions at the time. And that helps me move through an event um, with a bit more ease, I would say. I think that's beautiful advice. I was also having a conversation with um, an architect for Funga mm -hmm. the other week. And he was also talking about that, you know, emotions are just emotions. We're the one that characterize them into bad and good emotions. But it's important when these bad emotions come up to let them in, to feel them, to let them teach you because they're, yes. su they're supposed to teach you something, to breathe and then exactly to let them pass by, to basically exactly. be an empty vessel. Exactly. And I thought exactly, that was yeah. a beautiful thing to, to yeah, think I about. Think, I, think, I think the architect is spot on. I mean, you yeah. know, and ultimately feelings of, of anxiety are a signal that something's not right in the world, whether it's the world itself or within me, and because obviously there's a rational anxiety and an irrational anxiety, and, and mm -hmm. those of us that tend to have that tend to be more neurotic, have more anxiety, more depression, and our outlook on life is that the world is a dangerous and unsafe place, um, tends to lead us, leave us in a perpetual state of high anxiety and seeing ghosts and stuff like that around every corner. And um, but like. You know, as I remind my guests, your anxiety response or your fear response is often an unconscious response, right? It just happens. It's a response. Whereas our courage is a conscious decision. It's a conscious response that we can make to face certain things. And I think that once we can be, begin to separate the two and realize that, it enables us to much better reframe um, negative events in our lives and negative mm -hmm. situations as well. Um, there's a very interesting Chinese parable that I talked to our guests about at some point on retreat. And um, it's only a short one, but, you know, back in the day, way back in China, a thousand years ago, there was a farmer. And um, one day, three of his prize horses ran away. And all the villagers came to the farmer and said, well, you have poor fortune, don't you? And he says, well, maybe. Um, a week later, his three horses returned and brought seven wild horses back with them. And the villagers all turned up and said, well, you have great fortune, don't you? He said, maybe. The next day, his son was trying to tame the wild horses and got thrown and broke his leg. And the villagers said, well, you have bad fortune, don't you? And he said, maybe. And then a, a few days later, the Chinese army turned up to, to conscript his son into the army, but they couldn't because he had a broken leg. And the villagers turned up and said, well, you have good fortune, don't you? And he said, maybe. But the moral, the, the, the message in here is don't always um, judge immediately any given event as being oh. either good fortune or bad fortune. Because over time, if you can take some perspective, mm -hmm. um, things become ameliorated and you can get a different framework and different degree of understanding about these types of situations. I'm sure there's been many times in my life when I thought, oh, my gosh, this is over, it's game over for me now. And yet a year later when I look back, I think, wow, I'm in a really great place now and I wouldn't be here where I am now had I not had that situation occur. Maybe you've had the same situations in your life, but. Absolutely. And I like to tell myself when something bad happens and I, I really don't know what's gonna come next and where to go. I really believe that life is precise. And yes. looking at my life, it's really been like that. Even the bad things, I'm very grateful for all of them because they brought me to, to where I am now and they taught me many important things. And that's, I mean, it's difficult because in the moment when it happens, you know, your emotions, yeah. obviously it flares up and it takes over, but yeah. it's important to keep that very aware, I find, to keep exactly. that in the center of your mind. I also, I want to ask you because you obviously deal with, with so many people that have had terrible things happen to them. Mm -hmm. And usually we hear about all the positive sides of psychedelic therapy. Mm -hmm. But in one of our early conversations, you were also 
telling me about the dark side of psychedelics that are less known. And I would just like to have you explain a little bit what that looks like. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, you're going to bring out the Jungian type thinking in me, right? Um, Or the way I perceive the world is through a Jungian framework somewhat. Um, There is dark and light to everything. There's a positive pole and a negative pole. Um, Certainly, you know, the the dark side of psychedelics, um, it can be the practitioners of of psychedelics. Um, Psychedelics is a hot new industry for many, right? and it's attracting all different types of people to it, many which come with very good ethics, with great integrity, and um, they've had their own experiences, they've begun to heal, they want to participate and help others heal, but it's also attracting um, what is known as the dark triad types of individuals, and the dark triad is a combination of uh, narcissism, is one triad, Mm -hmm. Um, sociopathy or psychopathy traits um, is another part of the triad and uh, Machiavellianism is another part of the triad so um, these are people that um, are low in remorse uh, low in integrity very low in actually probably no neuroticism because they have no fear they're quite manipulative and they're in this industry for personal gain and there's quite a few of those types of individuals and unfortunately when they create organizations around themselves that that psychological blueprint filters into the organization itself mm-hmm. so there's that side of things um, at the same time not all psychedelics are for everybody um, as part of our screening process um, which is very detailed where we understand a per- an individual's Um, full mental health history and medical history Uh, there are people that we have to exclude and deny from coming on retreat because they've either got a personal or familial history of psychosis or schizophrenia or they have a bipolar disorder or a latent bipolar disorder and unfortunately especially psilocybin can trigger um, mania which can eventually if it's um, not treated develop very quickly into psychosis So there's that side of um, um, the dark side of psychedelics. Um, So there's many, many different ways of looking at this. I mean, look, when somebody has a challenging experience, that isn't necessarily a dark experience, okay? It can seem dark, but in my mind, there's a big difference between a bad trip and a challenging trip. Mm -hmm. A bad trip is poor set, poor setting. The person isn't well informed. They don't feel psychologically safe. And the person that they're working with as a facilitator is not experienced enough. Um, All of that can lead to some pretty horrifying personal experiences. On the other hand, if, and we see this a lot at micro meditations, um, if you have been sexually assaulted or raped in your past, um, what often happens during that traumatic event is that the memories of the event Um, get relegated to the unconscious mind and they're largely not available to the conscious mind and secondarily um, the physiological and emotional response to that rape the fear the terror the sense of powerlessness the disgust the shame Mm -hmm. the body holds on to a lot of that and so as people try and get on with their lives um, all this is weighing them down it's largely unconscious they're developing maladaptive behaviors try and cope with life and so when they have psilocybin psilocybin has an ab reactive property which simply means it will bring that to the surface within you that has the most emotional charge so our guests in order to process um, their rape trauma will sometimes have to re-experience their body's first emotional and physiological response to that trauma Mm -hmm. and at the same time uh, they will start to recover memories of the trauma as well and so that's challenging um we're very experienced in taking our guests through that experience but what we see at the other side of that with our guests is that a lot of that trauma the repressed trauma material is released um they they will go through a a, often a short period of instability while they try and understand it all and make sense of it they need to continue to work with a, a therapist that specialized in specializes in sexual abuse and what we see time and time again is that they come through this and out the other side 
very much unburdened, very much healed, and now unable to unravel all of their maladaptive behaviors and dysfunctional relationships and start to establish more um, healthy behaviors and healthy relationships in the world. So I wouldn't call it dark side of psychedelics, but it's not so often that you really hear about that kind of thing so much in the popular press. Absolutely. But it, it must be so gratifying for you to, to, to witness that transformation within people and to help them discover and, and come through on the other side. You're right. It, it, it never gets old. And it's truly, truly deeply the most meaningful and gratifying work I've done in my life. And I'm so proud to uh, be part of Micah Meditations and have this great team that we've built here that does all this work alongside me as well. And I've now met two people, well, actually three people that have come to Maiko and all of them have come back completely transformed and with a completely new outlook. And it's extremely beautiful to hear these stories and, and to watch that, that change within people. Oh, it is. And yeah, like I say, it never gets old. Yeah. Um, and, but ultimately, you know, uh, as I said before with ayahuasca, the shaman does the healing to you. We are not a shamanic approach, but we do have certain, um, shall we say, non-contemporary healing practices that, the practices, practices that we use. Uh, but really the emphasis is on our guests to do the work themselves. And so mm -hmm. as much as those guests have the courage and willingness to lean into their experiences, the better the outcomes are for them. And so, uh, you know, the guests themselves are absolutely incredible. And to see them arrive here beaten up by life, um, just hanging on by their fingertips, only just coping, having tried everything else from talk therapy to pharmaceutical interventions to electroconvulsive therapy, and then to see them emerge from the other end of a retreat, really ready to thrive again, mm -hmm. is, yeah, it's incredible. Amazing. Okay, so I think let's go over to the second question, which is, mm -hmm. please share a moment in your life that you felt was completely surreal and this can be related to psychedelics or not you you can choose okay well i am very fortunate that um working with psychedelics means that even when i'm not under the influence of mushrooms myself there seems to be a surreal level of reality that exists for me at yeah. all times okay yeah. so um, for example, we get to, okay, let me step back a bit. Yes, of course, I go through my life and I make my decisions and choices um, predominantly based upon my normal ability to, to cognitively think and process and rationalize. That's one layer. The next layer is, is more of a, the lens through which I see the world is very much a symbolic layer. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this again harks back to the Jungian aspect uh, of things and so in particular with working with psychedelics um, a lot of synchronicity happens around guests um, just to just to sort of give you the perspective on what synchronicity is um, it can be that within your interior within your psyche within your psychology that you're um, dealing with certain ideas and issues or there are certain challenges in your life or things that you're mulling over and thinking about a little bit that all of a sudden they start to manifest within the exterior world, okay? Um, now, of course, all human beings have this biological programming that goes back millions of years that's the ability to spot patterns, pattern recognition, right? It was very important to our ancestors that we could see a snake against the background of a jungle. It saved our lives. So, of course, if I went out and bought a new red Tesla car tomorrow, the chances are suddenly I'd be seeing red Tesla cars everywhere, right? That is not synchronicity. Um, synchronicity is a-causal. The, the key example that's given by Jung is he was working with a client in his office and he had found it very, very difficult to, I'm going to paraphrase poorly here, crack her intellectual shell. She was mm -hmm. not open to any ideas um, of the psyche and mysticism and... Uh, the mystery of life and then one day she was recounting a dream she'd had the night before and in that dream um, a, a black and gold or a green and gold beetle showed up like a scarab the old Egyptian scarabs 
And as she finished saying that, there was a tapping at the window of Jung's office, and it was quite dark, there was no, not much light coming through, and he opened it, and in flew a green and gold beetle, which mm -hmm. he took and gave to the woman and said, is this what you had in your dreams? And she said, yes, and that <laughs> cracked her intellectual shell. Mm. He, and they could then make progress together. So um, we have synchronicities that happen all the time on retreat. Mm -hmm. uh, they seem to me to be very common when we're working with guests around trauma, okay, where the interior and the, the interior world and the exterior world start to merge and blend profusely. It's not just one thing, it's many things. And so for me as well, outside of the dosing space, I'm always experiencing synchronicities time after time after time after time. And so I use that extra layer of symbology and synchronicity to help me navigate life and to make my choices in life as well. So that's a kind of consistently surreal to me uh, reality that I exist in most of the time. The only question to me is to what degree are the intensity and frequency of these synchronicities, right? Yeah. Sometimes they're minimal and there's a few here and there. Other times I'm just bombarded all the time and um, and it can be many, many different subjects. There can be a small synchronicity, then a big one, then a few more smaller ones and a big one, but all consolidating around a particular idea or theme. And there can be anything from a half a dozen to a dozen themes that's within my interior at any given time. And then the synchronicities seem to manifest around me in support of that. And they give me information. Um, they cause me to look at those events in different ways. They sometimes they bring the right people into my life at the right time. And so it all just unfolds naturally. I would say that is um, at least my answer to your question on surreal events. Can you give us one example? Sure, sure. So yeah, I was I was working with a guest about three years ago, late 20s, Hispanic, um, with some borderline personality traits and was also the victim of um, some childhood sexual abuse and um, an abusive alcoholic father. So she grew up in Bolivia in a house that was her mother, um, the alcoholic abusive father and her dear old grandpa. Okay, and her dear old grandpa was the only one that really showed her any love. Okay, mm -hmm. and where she felt psychologically and physically safe with him. All right, so we're sitting in integration and um, we've heard about all of this. And then um, I gave her the dose of mushrooms. She went to her dosing spot and I'm just walking around the dosing area while everybody's coming up, ready to have their experience, all the guests were coming up. Yeah. And I saw on the ground a white feather. And I, it's not like me to do this, but I picked the white feather up and put it in a hole in my hat. I wear a hat to keep me covered up from the sun out here, put it in the hole in my hat, forgot about it. Later that day, I went to do some work with her because she was going through some powerful catharsis and dealing with the sexual abuse trauma. And, um, and I sat with her at the end and I saw for the first time on the inside of her wrist, there was a tattoo of a feather. And even down the side of the feather, it was like it had this V shape in it where it was open, right? Yeah, yeah. And I said, oh, you can have this then. And I, I remembered the feather in my cap and gave it to her. And it was the exact shape and size of the feather on her wrist, including the gaps in the side of the feather. That's incredible. So, but there's one more really interesting thing to this. I said, well, tell me, what, why do you have this tattoo feather? What does it mean to you? She said, well, a few years ago, my grandfather died and I wasn't able to be there for him. I was living in America then. And that night when he died, he came to me in a dream. And in my dream, a white feather floated from the top right hand side to the bottom left. And the meaning of that from her grandfather was, I will always be there for you. And so that white feather had so much more meaning. And, you know, I can pinch myself, I can kick myself, I can say that's just no way that's irrational it's it's just a coincidence but when these types of things happen time and time again yeah. with such frequency and that's just one example of hundreds that happen with our guests as they're working around trauma and or even having positive experiences with psilocybin as well uh, other synchronicities so that would be an example that i can speak to i've got goosebumps all over my yeah. body i love these yeah. stories okay let's go to the last question because to keep it in 
a good time, the podcast. Sure. If you could choose to exist as a plant, which one would it be? Right. Um, so I think it would have to be for a variety of different reasons. Um, the rose, a red rose. Interesting. Because of, because of what it means symbolically, right? I mean, it's always mm -hmm. meant love and romance. And in Latin, sub rosa means secrecy or confidentiality. Um, but also within the Jungian framework, it refers to the anima, um, the female aspect of the psyche. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of our frameworks of understanding is that as we individuate in life, that as men, we need to integrate the feminine aspects of our persona with the male aspects of our persona. And it's the same for females to integrate the masculine aspect of their persona with the feminine. Yeah. And I know that, you know, um, my feminine aspects of my persona, the empathy, the communication, the nurturing, the feeling side of things is something I'm always working on and developing and integrating. So it would have to be for all those different symbolic reasons, the rose. I ask everyone that I speak to, everyone that I interview this question. And I think it's very interesting, the variety of answers that I've gotten so far and, and yeah, how people interpret this question. Yeah, yeah. For me, it's, it's always going to be that symbolic layer. <laughs> I mean, yeah. look, living in Jamaica, I'm surrounded by beautiful botany and flowers and plants all the time. Yeah. But to me, the, the traditional red rose has so much meaning across many, many different cultures that all tend it's to true. overlap and mean the same thing. So, and historically so as well. 100%. Okay, so we're going to move into the next section of the podcast, which is, which are the fire questions. I'm going to ask you four questions. Okay. You have not been told these questions before, so the answer is very spontaneous. And just right. you know, answer with the first thing that comes into your mind. All right. What is the first adjective that comes to your mind when thinking about mushrooms? Oh, um, um, oh first thing that comes to mind, um, unity. Because... I've had so many incredible unitive experiences. Yes, I've done lots of work at the ground level on my own issues and my own darkness, my own shadow material. Um, but mm -hmm. once you, you know, I, if you have a high dose peak experience, the ecstasis, where you're taken to the top of the mountain, it's very unitive, this sense of connection and oneness with the world around us, the people around us, with ourselves. Um, the sense that, for me at least, whether you want to call it God, source, or creator, for me, there's something out there that is, and in, that is both magnificent, it's vast, it's ancient, it's old, it's massively intelligent, and it's entwined with humanity. And so having that unit of experience with what I call the other is definitely um, something that is indelibly printed in my mind and my heart, mm -hmm. hence unity and the unit of experience. What life lesson took you the longest to learn? Oh, I'm supposed <laughs> to be spontaneous around this. Um, that I'm, I, I'm quite a direct person. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like to self-edit. And... Um, but obviously, you know, socially, we have to self-edit ourselves just to be accepted within society, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I was, I was very much, a, I used to be very much a self-editor and not speak my truth. I was a very agreeable individual. I'd always put somebody else's needs above my own, and then, but that led ultimately to me collapsing in upon myself, and so for me, I decided to become as authentic as I could be as as tactfully direct as I could be and always speak my truth. When I did, and I began that, it was a bit messy to begin with. I had to fine tune my sensitivity, fine tune my, my language, fine tune my approach, fine tune how I would present my version of the truth in a direct way. But I found that when I did, and allowed myself to be vulnerable in the process, that the connection I was able to establish with people because they knew I was speaking truth mm -hmm. from myself, um, was led to much, much deeper, richer relationships for me. So I believe that even 
when it comes to areas of potential conflict. Um, I was conflict avoidant, and now I've since learned that generally conflict delayed is conflict multiplied. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm much better off speaking my truth now and raising an issue that's a conflict and dealing with it than I am delaying it and pushing it off down the road because often if it comes back later, as it inevitably does, it will be a bigger problem than it originally was to start with. So that would be the, the answer to that. You're so good at these questions. It would take me at least five minutes to think about it. And my answer would never be this clear. <laughs> what is your definition of consciousness? Ooh. Oh, that's a question. That's a question. Wow. I don't, well, um, in the same way that a fish doesn't know it's swimming in water or a bird doesn't know it's flying through the air. Mm -hmm. I think we humans don't realize that we are immersed in a field of consciousness um, that has various levels or densities to it. Um, there can be a very rarefied type of conscious experience. I think when people are depressed and down and anxious, their consciousness drops in frequency and vibration. Um, and so I think consciousness is many, many things. It's very hard to say it's one given thing. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm articulating myself that way right now, but I almost believe, I think consciousness is also a, um, an information carrier. Um, there was quite a famous Oxford professor called Rupert Sheldrake that wrote a book, I think it was called The Morphogenic or The Morphogenetic Field. And he speaks of a field that exists around human beings. It's an information container, past and present. And that maybe out of that is how telepathy and understandings arise between individuals outside of the spoken word. So I think it's, it's ephemeral, it's ineffable. Um, I hope one day we'll understand truly what consciousness is. But for me, it's, some, it's a field of information um, it's, a, it's a wavelength, it's a carrier that we are all seemingly immersed in, I would say. That's beautiful. It's a very tough question, that one. <laughs> but you answered it very nicely. Okay, the last one is, what is your superpower? Um, I, my imposter syndrome. Your imposter syndrome? Yeah. <laughs> how, how so? Well, um... I think as a Brit, as an Englishman, first of all, um, I don't think this is the case of all Brits, but typically we don't like to be the center of attention or in the spotlight. We're quite reserved. And, um, and so I guess, you know, one of the definitions of um, imposter syndrome or one of the explanations for it, at least one explanation is people that suffer with imposter syndrome haven't adequately enough integrated their accomplishments in life. Okay, um, but I think underlying that is a certain degree of humility as well. And so I think I'm surrounded all the time by great employees that are very skilled psychologists, therapists, psychiatrists. Many of the guests that come through my retreats um, are very highly qualified psychologists, psychiatrists. Um, and therapists in their own right, about 20% of our guests are in the mental health field. And here's me, the CEO of a micro meditations therapeutics of a cyber retreat, one of the leading ones in the field. Um, I don't have any licensure or mental health background. All I have is a deep passion for psychology and mental health and the human condition. And so I do feel that, you know, a lot of these mental health professionals have spent decades learning their craft, doing the hours, um, and then here's me running retreats and I feel like I'm, I should have some kind of license here. So what it does within me, it doesn't weigh heavily on me, but I'm always acutely aware of, um, the degree of knowledge that I don't have compared to my contemporary colleagues that work with me. So that always leads me to strive to be better, to learn more, to be more accomplished and to have the same skill sets that they do. I work with great analytical therapists. I work with great somatic um, feeling-based therapists. I'm in awe of the work they do. I'm more of a generalist. 
And so that imposter syndrome is probably my superpower. I, I, it, it fires me up in the right kind of way. It doesn't lead me to feel hugely insecure or to always doubt myself, but yeah. it always keeps me on my toes, I'd say. It's such an English answer that because it's self-deprecating. <laughs> And also, you know, it has negative connotations to it and the imposter syndrome, obviously. But I have heard from everyone that has been to Maiko that your superpower is, uh, is truly a, an energetic gift that you have, how you relate to people, how you're able to relate to people. And that, and that the people that come to Maiko feel safe around you. And I think... It's so important, especially with the work that you do. And yeah, so that is what I have heard that your superpower oh, that's, is. Yeah, that's, that's lovely. I will, I will sheepishly um, look around the room, pretending it's not about me and wanting the ground to open up below me and swallow me because like you know, I don't take compliments. What I will say that's relevant to the psychedelic space though, right, is that a patient or a guest is only willing to go so far And that's proportional to how safe they feel psychologically with the person that they're working with. But I'd say on a more unconscious level, um, the deeper a person has been in their psychedelic exploration, the more they've explored, the more familiar they are, somehow that's as far as a guest is willing to go with you as well. They don't mm -hmm. know it consciously. Yeah. Um, so I guess I've been deep. I've, I've charted and mapped the landscape of the, my personal unconscious, to some degree the collective unconscious, and then the realms beyond that. I feel very comfortable in there, so I think that's reflected on some level. My guests know that and are willing to come deep and do the work. <laughs> 100%. Okay, so to end, I would, I'd like to ask all of my guests for some recommendations. Okay. And... I would like to ask you what are three retreats other than micro meditations that you think are doing a great job and that you would confidently recommend. Okay. So I can give you two. Yeah, that's <laughs> fine. Okay. I was hard, I was hard pushed for three because, um, before I truly recommend a psychedelic retreat, I either have to know the individuals involved, their reputation needs to go before them, or I need to have spoken to guests or people that I know that have been there and had the experience, okay? Because um, it doesn't take much to create a poor retreat. Um, yeah. And the effort it takes to create a supremely great retreat is a vastly different set of qualities. So um, the first one I'd recommend is an organization called Enfold, okay? They're based in Canada and it's run by a guy called Steve Rio and his wife. And they work with um, the Bouffontaine toad um, with 5-MeO-DMT. Um, look, these days, if you want, you can pay somebody a couple of hundred dollars and go and do 5-MeO-DMT in their apartment in a city somewhere. That's not how I recommend it's done. Mm -hmm. um, so Steve Rio and his wife um, at Enfold in Canada are probably some of the best 5-MeO practitioners in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, very skilled, very experienced, very empathic. So I definitely recommend Enfold on the 5-MEO side. They either do private work or small group work, um, sort of four to five, six people at a time. I guess the other company I'd recommend, but I'm not sure whether they're doing retreats right now, is an organization called Synthesis out of Holland in Europe. Um, they've been around for a while. They're more spiritually focused rather than mental health focused. Mm -hmm. um, they have some great individuals on their advisory board, um, a strong relationship with Imperial College London. And I'd say they've definitely been doing, been doing some great work in the psychedelic space for the last few years in the same way that Micro Meditations has been as well. So um, Steve Rio at Infold for the 5-MEO and then Synthesis in Holland. Uh, they work with truffles. They can't work with mushrooms out there because the mushrooms are illegal but the psilocybin-containing truffles, if you're based in Europe and you're looking for um, a psilocybin experience, I'd recommend synthesis. But keep an eye out for when Micro Meditations turns up in Holland. That might be next year or the year after. And what about Beckley retreats in Jamaica? Beckley Foundation have a superb reputation. 
Um, I don't yet know enough about Beckley Foundation as a retreat, sorry, Beckley Retreats as a retreat company to comment really on how good they are. I mean, certainly the Beckley name goes without saying, has a lot of credibility, yeah. as, the, as does Amanda Fielding. Mm -hmm. um, but they're quite a different operation from us. So whereas we have, most of my team members are therapists and we do a mental health model. I think at a Beckley retreat, it's a wellness model. They won't accept a clinical diagnosis. And I think there's only one um, psychotherapist per retreat. Okay. Um, we have a regimen of doing three doses. Mm -hmm. They have a regimen of doing two doses. Um, and so there's quite a few differences. You cannot compare us and Beckley um, in parallel, really. It's a bit, bit of a different operation. So that's what I know about Beckley so far, but I'm gonna remain on the fence to recommending them until I've heard more. Yeah. I think that's the, uh, that's the right approach to take that has the most integrity. Very fair. And if, you, and if it was a negative reputation, I just wouldn't say anything and let yeah. my silence speak. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Justin. What a pleasure it was to speak to you today. Well, likewise, thank you for having me on as your first guest. Um, you've been a delightful interviewer. Great questions. I wasn't expecting the four random ones. I'm glad thank I... You was able to answer them. <laughs> Very <enough>. well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Justin. Well, I hope to see you soon in Jamaica. Likewise. You're very or, welcome down here. <laughs> or in Mexico City. And yeah. yeah, speak very soon. All right. Thank you, Milana. Bye, Justin. Take care.